0: Says, Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent am bold toward you. But I beg you that when I am present I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some, who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. And Father, we, Humbly ask and pray that as we continue now in our worship, that you would give us the grace to be receptive and sensitive to the voice of your spirit, God, speaking to us through the word of God. May your Holy Spirit now speak through what you've spoken in the scripture, and we ask this together expectantly in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, there is a definite difference between being what we might call defensive and actually being someone who's simply defending yourself. Being defensive is typically defined as being anxious to kind of challenge or avoid criticism that may be levied against you. We call that being defensive. Defending yourself is justifiably resisting, for example, an attack that may be made against you to protect yourself or others from danger or harm. Self-defense, justifiably defending yourself, is taking action to prevent from being overcome by an opponent or to necessarily avert loss or harm in some way and to ensure proper victory. Well, Our Lord Jesus Christ was, as we know in the Gospels, falsely accused many, many times over. He was verbally slandered, continually opposed in his efforts to do what was good and to advance the kingdom of God. And at times, we can see it even became necessary for Jesus. Due to stubborn and sinful and rebellious acts of men persisting in wrongdoing, sometimes even our Lord had to protect the honor of God had to protect the truth of God's word and God's work. And we see Jesus himself, even justifiably resisting forces of evil, many times by speaking truth. And Jesus humbly and confidently with authority defended himself in the ministry of the kingdom of God against darkness and the devil being able to prevail against such things. Now, as we come to chapter 10 in our study through Second Corinthians together, you're gonna to notice a shift as Paul concludes the letter. In this section, Paul, as a spiritually authorized representative of the Lord, as an appointed minister of the gospel by Jesus, he begins now in the latter part of the letter to begin to defend his authenticity and ministry from Christ. And because the Lord was working through Paul and was bringing truth to people's lives and the spirit of God's ministry was helping many people as a result, the powers of darkness And the kingdom of darkness was beginning to resist and try and stop that effort to restrict and hinder the work of the Lord. And much of that was coming from the form of false teachers, those who were skeptics, those who were trying to contradict Paul and his team's ministry with opposing views, spreading lies. Much of it was coming in the form of even trying to not just contradict the truth, but just to try and even just discredit Paul. As someone who wasn't sincere, wasn't accurate, and to try and stop God's truth from being spoken through him and his team of ministry together. And this was really all-out spiritual warfare. It was spiritual warfare that was taking place against the church, against the Apostle Paul and his ministry team, and it was being waged in the unseen realm. Yet it was happening in the lives of people in everyday experiences. So it was unseen spiritual warfare in an unseen realm that's spiritual, but it was taking place in the natural and tangible realm. These deceitful workers, and as the Bible even calls them, messengers of Satan, ministers of Satan, Paul's going to say, they were like harmful spiritual bullies who were doing things to threaten the welfare of God's people. And Paul was led of the Spirit now in this section to start to address this, to confront the spiritual bullies, to stop those who are damaging and deceitful workers in order to protect the work of the Lord. And in this, we learn, I think, some really valuable spiritual lessons in regards to how we navigate spiritual warfare, how we win in the warfare that will be waged in our day and age and against us in the same way, how to stand in defense against the works of the devil and his demonic forces when they are operating, when spiritual warfare is transpiring you'll notice with me in verse one as paul begins to address these things he says verse one now i paul myself am pleading with you he says by the meekness and the gentleness of christ who in presence am lowly or humble among you but he says being absent bold toward you but i notice again verse two he says i beg you i beg you that when i am present i may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold or stern, the idea is, against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. So notice Paul identifies here for us in verses 1 and 2 as he starts out this section. There was a select group, we might say, of spiritual troublemakers whose wrong view sincerely needed correction. Yet, notice in Paul's language, verse 1 and 2, Paul was humbly pleading that they would change in an appeal of love that there would not be need for him to be more stern or assertive to be able to correct their wrong behavior. He identifies that though most among the church were on track spiritually, you notice there in verse 2, if you look at it, he says there were, at the end of verse 2, some. He says there were some among them, who he intended to be bold against upon his arrival, if there was no change, if there was no repentance, it seems that he sensed that he needed to become strong in dealing with some of these error and lies because they were incredibly harmful. And it's important to understand as Paul's addressing this, that what this unhealthy group was doing was not just trivial troublemaking. It was much more than that. In fact, it posed severe spiritual threat. Paul's going to say in the next chapter, chapter 11, as he identifies them, if you glance over to chapter 11, verse uh, 13, look what Paul says of these people he's referring to. He says, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, Paul says, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. The idea is to deceive and and misguide. Therefore, it's no great thing if his ministers, who's Paul talking about? Satan's ministers. Isn't that interesting? Satan has ministers. So just because somebody says they're a minister doesn't always mean they're God's minister. He says, it's no great thing if it's his ministers transforming themselves into ministers of righteousness whose end will be according to their shame. So that's a pretty strong language Paul identifies. Actually, Satan's ministers, deceitful workers that are just transforming themselves into ministers of righteousness to be able to harmfully misguide people in a wrong direction. He also expresses concern in chapter 11 as well about the spiritual welfare of the church. If you look at verses 2 to 4 in chapter 11, Paul says, for I'm jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I betrothed you that is engaged you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, verse 3, he says, lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For someone comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, Or if you receive a different spirit by which you've not received and a different gospel, he says, which you have not accepted, you may well put up with that. And Paul was deeply concerned that they would be misguided and deceived and see this subtle deception was that these false apostles, these deceitful workers and false teachers, they were using the things of Christ. They were using the name of Christ, operating under the banner of Christianity, under the banner of churches and so forth. But it was false doctrine, and these dangerous and deceitful workers were twisting angles of God's truth, keeping the banner of Christ, the banner of Christianity, but they were preventing people from having the full truth of God's word, and they were like deceitful workers misguiding people off track in the things that they were doing. And it was incredibly destructive to the souls of people. They were exalting themselves as important, hoping that they would be followed and they could slowly misguide people away from Jesus and away from the truth. And one avenue, as I said, them doing this was that they basically were doing things to try and discredit Paul and, and his team who had, remember, come and planted the church there in Corinth. And they were the faithful, genuine ones who were loving the flock and guiding the church at Corinth. And they knew that if they could get the sheep disconnected from the authentic shepherd who was loving and guiding them and teaching them that the sheep would be way more vulnerable to be guided off track and that they could lead them in other directions. And this unhealthy group that was not being led by the spirit that Paul was concerned about, but by their human spirit, Paul identifies the thing that they were doing, which was wrong. And Paul mentions in verse two, he says, this group, some who are doing this, they think of us, he says, as if we just walked according to the flesh. In other words, Paul says they wrongly assume in their deception that we as a team of ministers are just operating in natural human reasoning. They wrongly think we just conduct ourselves in human strength. And that there is no authority from the Lord in what we are doing among you. And Paul says the error in that is they fail to realize God's involvement in what we're doing. And they think that they can just kind of dismiss us easily and railroad us off track. And that we can be easily overrun and that they can just take over things and guide the flock in a different direction. Now what is amazing is despite the threat of those things and the wrongdoing that's going on. You notice in our verses here that Paul, in a very Christ-like attitude, is simply trying to win everyone over in an appeal of love. That Paul doesn't immediately become stern and firm. He wanted to appeal to them to change rather than exert authority to make them change in a more firm way. You notice what he's doing there? Again, if I can draw your attention to verse 1, what does Paul say? He says, I'm pleading with you. By the meekness and the gentleness of Christ, he says, who in presence am lowly among you. So Paul did not want to have to put pressure on people to do what's right. Instead, wanting to be loving, wanting to represent Jesus, rather than being firm and pushing people or pressuring people, he pleads with them in love that they would follow the right path, and in the nature and in the disposition of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says, I'm appealing to you, verse 1, by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. I mean, think about our Lord Jesus. He possessed all authority from heaven's throne, right, when he was here on this earth. He had power at his disposal to use, yet Jesus, when you look at him in the Gospels, did he not conduct himself in such gracious Humility, in such compassion and kindness and gentleness and meekness, always showing compassion, even for the errors among humanity. In fact, the one autobiographical statement our Lord Jesus made about himself, it comes to us in Matthew chapter 11. Jesus said this about himself. The one thing he chose to say about himself, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly or the idea is meek or humble in heart of all the things Jesus could have said in an autobiographical way about himself the one thing he chose to draw attention to was the fact of his gentleness his humility his meekness and look when the spirit of Jesus Christ is then ruling inside of us When Jesus lives in you and lives in me as he does as a Christian, when we receive the Lord, his spirit enters within us. He wants to manifest his life through us, that we would become more Christ-like. And so Paul here says, I am pleading with you, he says, by that meekness and gentleness of Christ. Again, meekness does not speak of weakness whatsoever. Rather, meekness is power under control. Probably one of the best you know, illustrations of what meekness truly is. It's like a powerful, wild, strong horse, a thoroughbred out in the wilderness that has incredible power and strength. But then once that horse is then broken and then they can put a saddle on its back and someone can get on that horse and it's tamed and it can be ridden and guided with just a, a bit and reins, that's, that's a picture of meekness. That horse has not lost its strength, right? It still has the power to throw anybody off its back. That horse has not gotten more weak. The difference is all of the power and the authority and strength in that horse, it's now just brought under control. So it's power and authority, but under tremendous control, under restraint. It's managed. It's, it's the same strength within the horse, but yet its power and authority is now properly under control in stewardship without abusing or having its power go out of control. And this is the idea of, of meekness there, that we would have authority and power, but yet authority and power under control. Jesus was meek. He had incredible authority. He had supreme power, but it was under complete control. Again, to be the same analogy, again, if you think of someone, let's say, for example, you who know, practices martial arts or somebody who's got you know military combat background, and you know that's a person that could snap your neck in three seconds. But yet... They choose in discipline to keep that strength and that power and that authority under control. It's it's a discipline. That's meekness. Incredible power, but yet kept under control in a lowly attitude of humility. It's only used that authority when it's absolutely necessary. It's only used that strength when it's absolutely necessary. And this is the idea. King Jesus, and he was king of kings, conducted himself in complete meekness, mild-mannered, tempered and as a servant of jesus with his power and authority in our lives we should still like our lord jesus manifest meekness humility in the way that we conduct ourselves it doesn't mean an absence of authority it doesn't mean we're weak it just means that we are meek and we keep that power under control to be like our lord also notice paul says that he also wanted to be exercising the gentleness of christ and that word gentleness there Speaks of being content tender and compassionate. It gives the idea in the Greek word there of being lenient with error. Being gracious and lenient even with troublemakers and wrongdoers. That you extend a measure of grace towards flaws and shortcomings. Jesus, again, his preferable attitude dealing with people in the Gospels when you see him with a, you know woman caught in the act of adultery. How was he? Was he stern and severe? No, he was incredibly compassionate. Incredibly lenient, incredibly gentle. And whenever Jesus would deal with people who failed or who had made mistakes, even his enemies, so often, Jesus' first response was to be very lenient, to try and be gentle with them and to be tender. Again, the idea of gentleness, if we need to actually say it, is the opposite of being harsh, being someone who's overly stern, someone who's sharp in the way they behave, you know, abrasive in attitude critical in spirit. This is all the opposite of what gentleness means. Gentleness is that tenderness, that compassion, that patience in relating to people, especially those who failed or those who are misguided. Remember what Jesus even said from the cross as he was there being punished on the cross unjustifiably? He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That's gentleness manifested there. They don't know what they're doing, Father. Forgive them. And that's that picture there of the opposite of, you know, harsh and just someone who's abrasive, instead showing gracious tolerance. And the Bible calls us as Christians to manifest gentleness. As Paul speaks about here, Ephesians 4 2 says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. I'm so thankful that the Bible uses that direct terminology bearing with one another. Sometimes that's. Christian compassion and gentleness, learning how to bear with people, bearing with one another in an attitude of love. Bible tells us in Galatians chapter six, when someone's caught in sin or maybe they have failed, it says this in Galatians six, brethren, if anyone is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, that's the qualification to help someone who's failed, you who are spiritual, restore such a one, listen, in a spirit spirit, of gentleness considering yourself lest you also be tempted paul told timothy in regards to ministering to other people second timothy chapter 2 he said a servant of the lord must not quarrel remember that when you get in all your arguments with people a servant of the lord must not quarrel but be gentle to all able to teach patient in humility correcting those who are in opposition if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth, come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having taken captive by him to do his will. Notice the language there. The Bible says that in the same way we want to know God's will as Christians, second Timothy two says that the devil has a will for people's lives too. Paul mentions right there. There are those who have lost their senses And they are ensnared by the devil, being taken captive by the devil to do his will. Some people become captured by the devil's imprisonment to do the devil's will instead of God's will. And the Bible says those are people that in humility and love and through prayer, we have to hope God would grant repentance, that they might be liberated from such things, that they would come to their senses That the lies they're believing, the deception going on in their mind would be something they're liberated from so that they are freed from the devil who's taking them captive and making them do the will of the demonic realm rather than the will of the kingdom of God. And there are two different wills that can be done. And Paul here expresses concern in regards to that. And Paul's saying, look, when I'm with you and ministering there, He's saying, when I'm present with you, he says, verse one, I'm lowly among you. He says, but it's purposeful. I try to be humble in your midst because Jesus only exercised boldness and he did at times exercise boldness. It seems Jesus only exercised boldness when? When he had to, when there was no other recourse. At times, Jesus became very firm. Yes, he did, but it was not his preferable line of ministry. He preferred to be gracious, gentle. He would appeal in love, but Jesus also knew sometimes love periodically does have to get a little firm. And only when it was necessary would Jesus do such. And it seems Paul, a servant leader like Jesus, sought to operate in humility as well. He says, I'm lowly among you. I don't try and act like I'm important, like I'm more special than everyone else. Paul says, I'm begging you though, please. He says, when I get there, I beg you. When I'm present, he says, I don't want to be bold. (laughs) with the confidence and the boldness, I think I'm going to have to be bold with if people don't repent before I get there. You know, as I, I hear Paul's words here, it almost reminds me of, and I forget the guy's name, it was David something, right? Remember the Incredible Hawk show years ago? You won't like me when I'm angry? Remember he would say that? He was, kind of, was just this meek, humble guy, and he's like, please, please don't make me get angry. I don't want to become the Hulk. You know? and, and, and that kind of sense, Paul like that. I just, I don't want to have to be stern, Please. Don't make me see. So I'm begging you. I don't want to have to be firm when I get there. You almost sense Paul here. in Maturity is trying to like diffuse things from getting more intense. And I like that heart there. This is wisdom that Paul was trying to diffuse intensity, even when people were doing what's wrong. And you already begin to notice as we go into this section. Now in second Corinthians 10, you begin to notice right away where the primary battleground is in spiritual warfare. And it is right here in the mind. That's where the battleground is. Do you notice what Paul says there? Again, if I can draw your attention to verse two, Paul says they what? They think. What's he referring to? They have wrong thoughts. Their mind is misled. They're deceived in their thinking. Their viewpoint is skewed. See, this is the primary battleground in spiritual warfare, the reasoning and capacity of mankind. Because it's darkened. It can be misled. It can be misguided. Our thinking is broken. There's spiritual deception. Paul's going to say, as we read in verse 5, specifying there about wrong thoughts and people arguing in their reasoning against what is good and what's true. Arrogant ideas in the reasoning of men that contradict the knowledge of God, the truth of God's word what it means to be obedient to Jesus, because the devil's primary target, folks, I'm telling you, you've got to know it. The primary target of the devil is the minds of humanity. That's why Paul said in chapters previously regarding the unconverted soul, he says that the devil, the God of this age, has blinded the minds of those who do not believe. See, when someone chooses not to believe, That they're a sinner and that hell is real and they're accountable for their sin and that Jesus Christ, the son of God in love for them was sent to this earth to die on the cross, to take the punishment for their sins, to resurrect the third day and to be the savior, to offer the gift of eternal life freely to them if they will just receive and believe by faith alone in Christ alone in his finished work, and that that is the only way to get to heaven, that they must be born again, as Jesus said. And if people choose not to believe that, the Bible says when someone will not believe, it gives opportunity then for the God of this age, the devil, to blind them spiritually, to blind their mind where then to them, they can't reason. Now, when they choose not to believe, it, it, it gives the devil the chance to blind people, but the devil blinds their thinking. Oh, that doesn't make sense to me, or I'm not doing that, or I'm religious or nothing. And the devil just blinds people in religious deception. The Bible tells us as well, all the way back from the beginning of the opening of the word of God in, in Genesis chapter two and three in the garden of Eden there, what do we see happen? As soon as the devil comes on the scene, the very first time you hear the devil's voice, what is he doing? You shall not surely die. The very first time you hear the devil's voice in the Bible, what's he doing? He's raising questions in the minds of people. He's making them question the will of God, question the goodness of God, question the nature of God, question the word of God. His playbook hasn't changed. He's running the same playbook through all of humanity to get people to question God, to question the scripture, getting people to be misguided in their minds. That's why Jesus said of the devil, he is the father of lies. And when he lies, he speaks his native language. Look, we often think, oh, the devil's doing this, the devil's doing that. You know what the primary thing the devil's doing is just subtly deceiving people all over the planet. Because see, the devil can get people to go out and commit sexual sin or get drunk or i mean i mean we pick your poison to do all these other practices of sin and wrongdoing but at the end of the day if he can just deceive people mentally and spiritually and keep people deceived and not receive jesus christ keep people deceived not to believe the word of god keep people deceived to behave in ways that wreck their marriage and ruin their families and harm people around them the devil is more than glad to just quietly sit back and just subtly misguide the thinking of humanity and get people to just self-destruct in the way they behave. Even with believers, as followers of Jesus, I tell you this this morning, the devil has lost access to our soul and our spirit. That's why he always is trying to attack our minds. That's where the spiritual warfare happens. Jesus, remember, had to rebuke Peter on one occasion because what was Peter doing? Arguing against the will of God. Jesus said, listen, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be put to death. The third day I'll rise again. Peter didn't like hearing that. He loved Jesus, right? Far be it from thou, Lord. There's not on my watch. You are not going to be beaten up and killed in front of me. And he started rebelling against what was the will of God. And what did Jesus do? He turned to him and he said, get thee behind me, Satan. You're not, listen, you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Peter, you're thinking like a rational man. Your mind is off track. Peter was a follower of Jesus, which reminds me that as followers of Jesus, where does the devil launch his attack against our minds to get us to think wrongly, to get us to question, to get us to get off track in our mentality. And the mind and the thinking of the mankind is the devil's playground. He works to conquer territory within our thinking patterns to get us confused, to get us off track, to take captive wrong thinking. And then he uses our pride And our stubbornness and our selfishness and and just causes us to set up walls internally and mentally to keep truth from liberating us from the invisible shackles and prison cell of the devil's deception. And Paul here begins to identify this reality of spiritual warfare, which he now goes on to address. Look, we understand it's a spiritual battle. How do we overcome and find victory? Well, Paul's glad you asked. Look at verse three. He says, though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, he says, for pulling down strongholds. So we realize we live, notice, we live and walk in the fleshly, tangible existence. Here's Paul talking about just the physical, the material, the flesh, We experience things in this material world, everyday circumstances we're living in, our situations, our interaction with people, and and here's what happens. We experience the impact of the unseen spiritual battles that go on. We experience it in the flesh. So in the unseen realm, in the spiritual, there's, there's spiritual warfare, there's spiritual battles going on. But those things manifest themselves and take place in the realm of the flesh for us. The issues we have with people relationally, the arguments and the disputing and the behaviors. And so the attacks and the antagonism and the problems and the issues. And we're just thinking, man, I'm having a really bad day. Well, maybe you are. (laughs) Or maybe a really bad day circumstantially is the result of spiritual things that are happening in an unseen realm. And you are experiencing it in a really bad day. Or maybe it's a really bad situation, or maybe it's an ongoing relational problem, or maybe it's, again, you can fill in the blank there. So we experience the spiritual battles and the conflict in the flesh. That, that situation that's going on that's frustrating us, that's hurting us, and that is, we know is wrong, and it's destroying something. And so we experience it in the flesh, but then the mistake is what we do is we start what? Trying to then conquer it in the flesh because we experience in the flesh. So the, the dispute or the argument happens and it's totally spiritual warfare trying to cause that argument and dispute that's going on. And so we just, well, I'm just, I'm going to fix this in the flesh. I'm just going to out argue you. And so then we war in the flesh and through fleshly efforts, we try and use our own human reasoning to fix the problem. Or we try and, argue more effectively or we start to manipulate or scheme or we behave in ways in our own anger or our own impatience for things to change or in our hurt. And yet, here's the thing. When we use fleshly tactics and fleshly weapons to solve spiritual problems, to fight spiritual warfare and battles, guess what happens? We just get in the flesh more, right? Right? In the sinful flesh. And all we do, it's like fuel to the fire, is we get into sinful behavior, and it causes the spiritual conflict not to resolve. It typically causes it just to intensify. It becomes worse for us. It becomes worse with those that we're engaged in. And though we recognize the reality that we experience the warfare in the flesh, the thing the Bible says we have to realize, verse 3, is we do not war. According to the flesh, the battles come in the flesh, but we can't respond in the flesh. We can't fight back in war. We're not supposed to bring fleshly ideas and efforts into a spiritual war, the Bible's saying, because those fleshly efforts, unfortunately, typically just cause us to misfire and say things we shouldn't or to mess things up worse or to create bigger wars because we simply don't have in the flesh what's needed to overcome spiritual battles. That's why Paul says, look what he says, verse four, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but what, mighty in God. Now take notice, the Bible is very clear. We are indeed engaged in a war. There is a warfare that we are engaged in. There's no question of that. Ephesians six speaks about this reality that spiritual battles are happening. He says, we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world against mighty powers in this dark world and against the evil spirits in heavenly places so we can't dismiss the reality of spiritual warfare in fear because it freaks us out the idea that there is spiritual warfare that goes on we can't dismiss spiritual warfare and frustration or just apathy you and i folks as christians we're not on a playground We're in a battleground. The Bible calls us good soldiers of Jesus Christ. We were drafted into a battle. I'm sorry if nobody told you that when you accepted Jesus, but you're in the army now. (laughs) And you begin to realize it as you walk out your Christian experience. There is this reality of a battle and warfare. And so we need to know effectively, how do we overcome in the warfare? How do we not be overcome by the enemy and his attacks launched against us? And how do we wage a good warfare and fight the good fight and see the victory that God wants to bring? How do we battle with what weapons? Well, Paul says right here for us in verse four that we don't use carnal weapons. The idea is that we don't use ideas and efforts of human origin. We don't use natural human strength and try and muscle our way through it like we would in a physical conflict. We don't handle things the way the unsaved world does. So we don't draw from, well, this is what I see people do at work, or this is how I saw people when I was grown. No, no, check all that at the door. We don't use the same patterns as the world because the world is in a constant state of warfare because they're trying to solve their issues with fleshly carnal weapons, which just causes more and more complications. The weapons of our warfare, the Bible says, are not fleshly carnal weapons. They're divine supernatural weapons. Notice he says there, the weapons of our warfare aren't carnal, but mighty in God. That is, they have the mighty power of God at work in them. An all-powerful, almighty God wants to help us, and by his power and his strength, we can war properly and overcome and not be defeated when spiritual warfare is happening. Now, the weapons of our warfare, which are mighty in God's spiritual weapons, Let me, if I could, propose simply just three very blatantly obvious spiritual weapons that are the weapons that are mighty in God are spiritual weapons to fight spiritual battles. Let me simply mention three. One of them should be obvious. It's the word of God. The word of God. That is the spirit-inspired, eternal, infallible, authoritative word of God Almighty, It's potent truth, which the Bible says is like a hammer that can break through rock. Jesus, when he was on this earth, living in his humanity as a man, and he was tempted by the devil three times. You can read it, Matthew chapter four. How did Jesus fight that spiritual battle? Three times, what did he do? He stood upon the authority and the truth of the word of God, and he said, it is written. And he overcome the devil, he overcome the spiritual battle, he overcome temptation by using the potency of the supernatural power of the word of God as one of his weapons. And it's so important for us to realize that we are called to use the same. Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit the joints and marrow And as a discerner, listen, of the thoughts and the intent of the heart. The word of God, the Bible says, is like a powerful spiritual sword that can cut through lies. A sword that can defeat giants. A sword that can slay a lion. And the devil is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You know, there are times when I sense the roaring lion Coming into a situation, and you know what I seek to do in that situation? I seek to take the sword of the Spirit and shove it right down his throat. You're going to come at me and work in this, just with all kinds of, fine. I, I don't have answers. I don't have a pill that can fix that. I, I don't have some solution to that. But what I can do is I'm going to take the word of God into the situation. And I'm going to shove it down the lion's throat. And I'm going to speak and stand upon the truth of the word of God. And I'm going to let that like a sword cut through the lies in somebody's conscience as they lay in bed in every night and wrestle with the authoritative inspired truth of the word of God. It's one of our spiritual weapons. We stand upon the truth of God's word. Regardless, that's the final authority. Not only the word of God, but also secondly, another weapon spiritually we could say is seeking God or what we might say prayer not only the word of God, but seeking God, prayer and intercession, the power available to us when we go to God and plead with an almighty God to intervene into a situation. James chapter five tells us the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. That is, there is great power to produce mighty results. How? Not when we pick it, Not when we politicize things, not when we talk on social media. It's when we say we have need to plead with God. We have access to a throne that has power and authority to do things that are miraculous. But we have to go and seek help at that throne and prayer. Prayer becomes this powerful weapon, sadly, that so often I think the devil deceives us from using, but yet God has put at our disposal to do incredibly powerful things. The weapon of prayer, the spiritual weapon of prayer. And thirdly, another thing that's very obvious is simply the spirit of God that is relying on the mighty power of God's spirit. The Bible tells us, Zechariah 4, Not by might nor by power, that is human force, but by my spirit, says the Lord. As we walk in the spirit, as we serve in the power of the spirit, as we speak under the inspiration of the power of the spirit, that is something that's incredibly powerful. Not getting in the flesh, not relying upon human force or manipulation, but we need to be spirit-filled people operating in the baptism and the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, you shall receive dynamic power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. I think the devil, if he is ever going to be slightly a little bit concerned, is when he sees a spirit-filled, baptized, anointed Christian under the power of the Holy Spirit, walking in the Spirit, serving in the Spirit, speaking under the inspiration of the Spirit, because the devil has no recourse for that. Nor does the devil have any recourse when you plead with the throne of God and you seek God. Nor does the devil have any recourse or strength when you put forth the sword of the spirit, the word of God. These are vital spiritual weapons. The error is that you and I so often in Christian warfare, we neglect to utilize these weapons and we resort to fleshly tactics. And we experience things in the flesh and so we get frustrated in the flesh and so we respond in human, normal, everyday ways that everybody else does instead of resorting to the word of God and its authority and seeking God in prayer and asking for the baptism and power of the Holy Spirit to be effective to overcome. But yet notice, if we do use these mighty weapons in God, what are they able to do? Well, look what verse four says. They are able to do what? To pull down strongholds, to pull down strongholds, Strongholds are a place where something's been fortified and preserved against attack so that you can keep prisoners in the stronghold. And this is what the devil does in spiritual warfare. He sets up spiritual strongholds where in people's minds, he gets people deceived and then he gets them stubborn and proud and arrogant and he gets a stronghold set up in their mind. The devil sets up spiritual strongholds in getting people outside of God's will, keeping people in bondage to sin, where sin becomes a stronghold in their life. And the devil keeps them in bondage like a slave, and he's got a stronghold over that person. Well, look, the Bible says these spiritual weapons can do what? They can pull down strongholds. They can take down walls like walls of Jericho. These spiritual weapons are able to demolish the barriers spiritually that bring about resistance to what is the will of God rather than the will of the devil. And so the Bible says that as we resort to the word of God, as we resort to seeking God in prayer and depending on the Holy Spirit, all of a sudden the mighty power of God can start pulling down strongholds and lives start being liberated and people can be delivered and truth can set people free and people can be healed and deliverance can come and strongholds can start to come down and incredible things can start to happen. And what do those strongholds look like? Well, Paul describes it in verse five. He says, it's casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Again, we note, as I said earlier, where's the battleground? The mind. Paul says, thoughts that are wrong, arguments that are opposed. And what are these thoughts and arguments opposed to? He mentions verse five against the knowledge of God. That is what's true about God, his nature, his will and way, believing lies about God that aren't true. Not being willing to you know, think that God's word is true or accurate. Ideas or reasoning in people's heads that contradict the knowledge of God's word, that challenge the truth of God's word. Rationales and disputes that go against the knowledge of what's true in scripture. These are strongholds, Here, Paul says they need to be defeated. They need to be pulled down. These are things that need to be taken, in a sense, an offensive to overcome them. Because why? They're ruinous to people's lives. They're destructive to families. They begin to defile churches and can ruin a whole culture. And he says, then these things become like arguments towards people opposing the truth and opposing the knowledge of God. And he says these arguments that do what they cause people to come into disobedience to Jesus Christ. And sometimes this begins to happen. These things where times in people's minds, they start reasoning due to listen, due to their feelings. My thoughts deceive me. My feelings lie. They're always drifting like an ocean tide. That worship song says. And people have feelings and desires, you don't understand. This is how I feel. I understand it's how you feel. But we don't live by feelings. We live by faith. Feelings are real. doesn't mean they're right. You can feel all you want to feel. Just because you feel that way doesn't mean it's right. Feelings can be deceptive. Feelings and desires can misguide us. They can be something that leads us off track. And then people in their feelings and desires and or their lusts for something or their stubbornness towards something, they start to resist what is right in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. And they start to argue in their own mind or argue against others that they can justify disobedience to Jesus. That they can justify rebellion against what they clearly know is the will of the Lord in the word of God. And they wrongly begin to, in confusion, justify that it's acceptable to rebel against the authority of the lordship of Jesus Christ. And Paul says here in verse 5, he says, this is what happens. They begin to exalt themselves against the knowledge of God and dispute in arguments against what's true towards Jesus Christ. And he says, this is not acceptable. That's not good. He says, in fact, when that happens, these kind of thoughts, look what Paul says, verse five, those wrong thoughts, they have to be taken into captivity to the obedience of Jesus Christ. The idea here, Paul is saying, is when these wrong thoughts, these disobedient ideas say I can rebel against Jesus or contradict what is the will of the Lord or disobey the word of God, when that starts to happen, He says it's important to know that battleground is going on and those thoughts have to be captured real quick. And those thoughts have to be captured and brought into subjection to the authority of Jesus. We need to realize that is an enemy invader and it is not going to have access to run through my mind or to set up a base of operations in my mind so I can keep justifying for the next day or week or month or year upon year that I can keep disobeying Jesus and doing what's wrong. He says that thought needs to be captured and not tolerated because it is an enemy takeover mentally. And he says, it's gotta be conquered. Instead, we have to capture those thoughts and bring them into rebellion. Again, because what's happening is an enemy invader is trying to take over control and usurp the the throne of Jesus in my mind. And so we can't allow that to happen because those things are rebellion against the Lord. And that's never acceptable. And it's never good. It just ruins our lives. It ruins our families. It can ruin a church. It can ruin a culture. So we have to be firm and strong when it comes to defeating the enemy invaders that come into our minds at times. Paul concludes verse six by saying, being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Notice Paul's expecting loving obedience and that most are going to submit to what the spirit of the Lord is prompting. And Paul says here, I'm going to allow opportunity necessary for those of you to show your obedience. But then after time has been permitted, I will deal with any remaining disobedience. One translation renders this after you've become fully obedient, we will then punish everyone who remains disobedient. Notice Paul appeals in love and then he waits patiently, graciously and gentleness for people to change. But then Paul says there is going to come a timetable. When if change does not happen, that we may need in spiritual discipline to step in with sternness and punish rebellion against our Lord. And I appreciate this here. I mean, we may look at that and think, man, that is some firm language Paul's using there to punish. He says disobedience. Why that stern language? I mean, like a like a father to threaten to punish. I'll tell you why, because disobedience and rebellion against the Lord, folks. Please, 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 please hear me. Disobedience and rebellion against the Lord is destructive. And it ruins people's lives. And it destroys families. It defiles churches. It's ruining a culture. And the devil, folks, is nothing other Then honestly, a spiritual bully. And I'm not a big guy, but I'll tell you one thing. I hate bullies. And the devil is a spiritual bully. And a spiritual bully is oppressing and taking advantage of people and manipulating them. And the devil as a spiritual bully cannot be given the freedom to bully people into destruction and to ruin people's lives. Instead, may God give us the backbone when needed spiritually to not surrender to the bullying tactics of the devil. But to take a stand in righteousness, Satan has bullied too many people in God's way. May he not do it on our watch. As the Lord gives us the love and the power and the authority of Jesus to overcome such things. Let's stand together and pray.